This is The Channel, a podcast from the International Institute for Asian Studies. Welcome to Episode 2 of our special series on the River Cities as Method Project, being developed here at the International Institute for Asian Studies. Just a note that if you haven't already listened to episode one in the series, you might be missing some important information, since Satya and I do not rehash that earlier context in this episode's conversation. You can find that earlier episode just before this one in your podcast feed, so I recommend you do go back and listen to that one first. In this episode, Satya and I continue our discussion of her work among the Riverine community. This conversation centers around the idea of biographies, which is the first pillar of the River Cities as Method project. Specifically, we get into the history, stories, and mythologies of the Riverine people and their relationship to the Xingu River. If you are currently researching the relationship between cities and rivers, and you think that your work might fit in well with the River Cities as Method project, visit ukna.asia. There you'll find more information, as well as the recently published Call for Expressions of Interest, By the time this episode gets released, the August 2022 deadline will be fast approaching, so don't wait to get involved. In the meantime, enjoy this second episode of our River Cities miniseries with Satya Pachinila. In our last conversation, episode one of this miniseries, we sort of talked about the broad, the broad strokes of your academic background, how you got interested in rivers and in particular rivers in Altamira, Brazil, and the riverine people that live around that river. And we also talked about this River Cities as a Method project that you, alongside Paul Rave here at IIS, are in the process of developing. We discussed that there are kind of three anchoring themes, and the first of those is bio or biographies. So for this episode, episode two, we thought we would also take that theme of biographies and really dive into the stories, myths, and histories of rivers and the people that live around them in general. So can we start with, again, your case study, who are the riverine people? Um, Yeah, thank you for this um, again. Let's dive in. The the Riverine people. So let's go back to 1870s, um, late 1870s, um, when there was the rubber boom in the Amazon forest, which is which was a very important socially and economically for that region. And so a lot of people from the northeast of Brazil went there looking for jobs, and. Once that rubber boom faded away, the bosses of these um, workers, the rubber soldiers, they left the rubber soldiers um, there in the Amazon. And some people found a way to go back. A lot of a lot of them, a lot of the soldiers stayed, and many of them were married to indigenous women. And and that's how the traditional Amazonian people, or uh, better called them, the Riverines, um, emerged. 
So the riverines are the children of, just so I can be clear, the, the riverines are the children of rubber workers from the northeastern part of Brazil who intermarried with indigenous women of the Amazon. And these are the descendants of those, those relationships. Yes. So Brazil is obviously a very diverse country. Can you just kind of sketch out for people like me who aren't particularly familiar with it, can you sketch out the broad demographic makeup of the country? Well, the country, we were um, invaded by the Portuguese, so colonized by the Portuguese in um, the 1500s. Um, and after, um, on the set, on the, on every single war that happened in the world, many, we had many migrants, um, also slavery, so we are very diverse. It's, it's a very, very diverse country. Um, and we also have the, the natives, the people that really own the, the are, are really the owners of, of the land, right? Those are the indigenous. So before the Portuguese came, we had 2,000 tribes. Um, and currently we have only 350 and then five, um, ethnic groups and 115 isolated. And the interesting thing in in Brazil is that currently, I, I'm not sure about before, but currently we have almost 300 um, different languages still alive in the country. Well, the reason I asked is just, I wonder if you could sketch how the Riverines in particular fit into this national demographic picture and what what i mean by that is are they perceived as indigenous are they perceived as something other than indigenous what how do they fit into the bigger national picture yeah because so they are traditional amazonian people so they are um, not in the category of indigenous they do not have the they do not own the land they cannot have the land under their um, tribe's name. Mm. Um, they cannot own the land. They can use the land. Um, so that's the that's a big difference. So under the constitution, the indigenous should be protected. If there is uh, indigenous land, that should, shouldn't be touched. It should be untouched. It's, it's under the constitution. Um, the traditional um, people, the riverines, they have their tradition protected under the constitution. So it's not the land, it's the tradition. In the first introductory episode we did, you talked about how in the course of your dissertation research, one of the difficult parts was gaining the trust of the riverine people that you were working with as an ethnographer. Um, and I wonder, as someone who's from Rio, does the particular place that the riverines have in Brazilian society, does that play into needing to gain this trust? Is there a level of mistrust of, say, outsiders from the urban centers among the riverines? Actually, that's a great question. Um, yeah, um, I remember being in the city. Um, once I landed in the state of Pará, um, that's where Altamira is, is um, located, um, inside the state, Altamira is a municipality. And um, I went to Belém, Belém is, is a city, is the capital of Paraná. 
And I remember taking a taxi and the guy asked me, where are you from? I said, I'm from Rio. He's like, oh, you're from Brazil. So you see the disconnection. There is a big disconnection um, between regions. And you can feel it. You can feel it when you're there. You mentioned your trip in 2015 last time we spoke as well. And I wonder if you could just expand a bit on how you got interested in this Riverine community as a researcher. Um, as a researcher, um, so in 2015, after a summer trip with my friends, I went to Alpanita to see what was happening, as I mentioned before. And I was talking to Fumai. Fumai is a um, department that works only with indigenous, and they did say that a lot of researchers were researching, um, were doing research in, in, on indigenous uh, people that were affected by the dam. And they said, have you looked into the riverines? I'm like, no, no, they can't. The riverines are a mix of indigenous and they are invisible. They are invisible to the, to, the, to the general population. And I thought, yeah, why not the riverines? You know, I, I, I'm very interested in, in looking into people that are marginalized. And I think that's important. It's always important to give them a voice and space to, yeah, to tell us what they feel and how they were treated, and we try to change that, mm -hmm. give them a little bit, empower them a little. You've already introduced the history of this community just a little bit um, in relation to Brazilian history and the rubber boom and things like that. I wonder if we could move more closer to the present now. Can you tell us a little bit about the lives and culture of this group as it exists today? Yeah, so the riverines, as you can, as, as the name say, right, river, and, and they are very connected to the river and the river, uh, river bank and everything that nature offers. So their livelihood is, a, is around that. It's only around the natural environment. And they, they treat it with a lot of respect um, because they need it. They always say we have to treat it with respect because tomorrow we're going to need it. So it's, it's like a, a trading thing, right? They treat it with respect and they receive something from, they believe as the indigenous do, um, the Rembrandts believe that they are part of the natural environment. It's a, it's a bit different from what um, human beings in the city believe, right? Um, I have an example. I went to spend a week with them in the river, in the in a house in, in, in the river bank, and I went to the supermarket and I bought a lot of things because I thought, you know, I should bring something. So I, I brought I bought rice, I bought beans, I bought, <laughs> I bought so many things. Um, and I took it and we didn't open anything. We didn't have to. For a week, we only ate whatever nature offered, which was, yeah, which was a lesson to learn. Yeah, what did that tell you about the lifestyle of, of the river runs? It's very sustainable. It, it's a very broad word. I understand it is, and and it's a word that people are really tired, but it's, it's, it's a 
very like a circle, you know, they, they understand that they are part of it and they, they understand that they have to use it in with a balance and nothing was thrown away. Everything was used to the end. So that was super interesting to me. That was, uh, that was, uh, yeah, it was a lesson. In conversations you and I have had off mic, you mentioned that there are a bunch of mythological stories that kind of circulate among the Riverine people and that they have retold to you as you conducted this ethnography. Can you share any of these stories or if you have an example, we would love to hear it. Yeah, I'll tell you that is uh, one myth. And this one, this myth shape the way they treat food. So um, the myth starts, um, so this, this myth was told, me, told to me by an uh, elderly um, riverine woman. We were sitting on, a, um, on the balcony, she was sitting on the hammock, I was sitting on the floor, and we were um, just talking about life, and that's what they do. They, they tell stories because they don't know how to write, but they're very, very good storytellers. So she was telling me about this myth, she was like, yeah, you know, so this, this river right man, he left after dinner to hunt. He, he needed to bring food for the next day. So he went out at night um, with his gun. And while he was walking in the forest, he saw two monkeys on the tree. And he killed one. And not satisfied, he killed the other one. He put both on his back and he started walking back home. He didn't find his way back home. He started walking circles and circles and circles and he was lost. It was an area very close to his house. He knew that area very, very well, which is amazing because the river and they really know their area very well. And he was walking around around two days past. He couldn't find his house. He put the the monkey's back, he was like, I, I, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have killed both of them. And then his wife um, asked for a neighbor to look for him. The neighbor went, found him in the, forest, in the forest, very close to home, and brought him back. The guy was never a good hunter anymore. So the myth is, that, that what they believe is, never kill more than you need. So one monkey was enough for the family, not two. Mm -hmm. So how do you understand stories like that, these myths that are retold to you in relation to your study? They give me this, the essence of what their tradition was built um, around. So their belief system, everything is, is, is around myths. So sometimes they don't go to the area because... And they think there is a, a big snake there or something like that. So that shapes um, the the spatial planning of of, of their their livelihood. Because my research, my PhD research, is about livelihood, myths have a lot to do with with that. Since you mentioned livelihood, can you give us kind of a daily snapshot of a day in the life of the Riverine people? What, what are their livelihood strategies? What do they do for work or money or food? Yeah, so um, I'll give an example of one family. 
Um, they had, uh, many years ago, of course, their kids are, are grown up now, but they had three small kids. And the, and the river and kids, they learned how to clean fish and, and clean the house very early on because everybody needs to work to survive. Um, and the parents would um, come back early morning from, from being out at, at, at the river, being a tired night, fishing. They would come back early morning, bring the fish, and go to sleep. While they're sleeping, the kids would wake up, clean the fish, get ready to go to school. Once the kids were back, everybody would eat, and at night, the parents would go again fishing. So that was more or less um, if you had if you were living in the riverbank. So because the city is closed by, they need the money, they need this the the, the economy. Um, they would take fish to the city during the weekend. That's why the relationship with the city is very important. And many riverbank families had a house in the in the city to facilitate um, this relationship and also to use the, the public services like hospitals and schools and blah, blah, blah. But then schools was after the kids were a little bit older. So the women would go to the, to the city with the kids and the men would stay in the riverbank working, fishing, coming, coming the, during the weekend to sell the fish, to give the wife money so they could, they would live this way for a while until the kids were old, old enough to, to finish school and then everybody would go back to the river. Mm -hmm. Now that goes nicely into where we're gonna go in the next conversation we have, mapping and cartography, where we'll dive much deeper into kind of the spatiality of the riverine community. But just as a way of introducing that and transitioning into this next conversation, can you talk about how long the Riverine people have actually been in Altamira and why did they end up there in the first place? Was it to access services and trading opportunities, as you said, or, or was there some other reason that drew them from the riverbanks into the city? No, it was exactly that. It was just, um, uh, yeah, to tra for trading and to, to yeah, make money and being close to the city, so the public services and everything that's offered in the city, it's not offered anywhere else. So that access, that, that facility, yeah. Um, so in that region, um, the region of this research was, it, it, it was explored later on because of the landscape. There are a lot of um, waterfalls in the in the um, before the dam, there were a lot of waterfalls. That why that's why the dam was constructed there. So that isolated that area for very very long time. It was really hard access. That's great. Yeah, we're going to dive into that, like I said, much deeper in the next episode, where we're going to talk more specifically about the spatiality of the riverine community, their relationship with the surrounding ecology, both urban ecology and natural ecology. So we look forward to that conversation. Thanks again for sitting down with me to talk about it. Thank you.
with Satya Pachanilam, who is academic advisor to the River Cities as Method Project, as well as the international principal investigator for the RCM pilot project. To learn more about the River Cities as Method initiative, stay tuned for episode three and visit the Urban Knowledge Network Asia website at ukna.asia. That's also where you can submit an expression of interest to join the River Cities as Method project. Thank you for listening to the channel. Please subscribe to receive all future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the International Institute for Asian Studies, a globally oriented institution based at Leiden University in the Netherlands. We are dedicated to fostering an integrated, multidisciplinary understanding of Asia and beyond, and we would love for you to get involved. For more information on our conferences, webinars, publications, and fellowship program, please visit eas.asia. That's I-I-A-S dot A-S-I-A. See you next time.